Hey everyone, my name is Dara Benyakar and this is The Shakespeareance. If you're new here, I, along with my former English teacher, Mr. Letterer, talk about Shakespeare. Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet is the longest scene in the play, so this will be the first of two episodes covering it. I hope you enjoy. Act 2, Scene 2 is very long, just as a warning. Let's, let's, let's jump in. This is, okay. long, this is, is this Shakespeare's longest play or, uh, yeah, I was going to say it's either one of his top three. It's his longest play. Yes, it's his longest play. Yeah, he got rolling so, on this one. He, was, he got he got out the quill pen. He went through, I don't know how many chickens. Yeah, and just to go back for a little bit to, I don't know, when we were talking about this, but who published the you know, where the comments were critiquing Shakespeare in the park. Was that the New York times? That was the times. I mean, the one that I read, I'm sure there were others, but I mean, the times is sort of the central source that, and I haven't, I, I don't have a subscription to the New Yorker at the moment. So I I'm sure they wrote something on it too, but basically that. And, but the one I read was the times. Yeah. So, so I was reading the comments, you know, after you said that, and even when we were talking, I said that one of my criticisms of the play was that they cut out the stuff with Norway. Um, but even with that, the play was two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. So my question to you um, is, should they have cut the play down maybe to make it more bearable for viewers or kept the same length and covered everything that was originally written in Hamlet. Well, I mean, look, you got to know your audience and you got to know the forum in which you're presenting it, right? So you're doing Shakespeare in the park. So if you're doing Shakespeare in the park and people are out and it's summertime and you've got a lot of people that are first time Shakespeare, you know, theater goers and this is their first experience, I think if you give them a four hour Hamlet and you keep them there until midnight, like, which is what it would be. Cause it starts at eight. Right. So, yeah. you, you know, if you're going to, if you're really going to go, and then if you do an intermission at that point, then, you know, nobody's, nobody's out of the park until one, like that's not going to fly. There's just going to be all kinds of, of pushback on it. And then you, the police union's going to be, you know, everything like it's just going to be a nightmare. So I do think that there are venues. Absolutely. I mean, you see Royal Shakespeare Company absolutely is going to do a full uncut Hamlet. You know, if you if you uh, go to see a show at like the Armory or something, they do a lot of stuff there. And like, um, you know, and those are expensive tickets. That's not you stand in line for a few hours and you get a ticket for free. You know, but this is very much. Like the Shakespeare in the Park thing. I think Hamlet's a weird choice. I think obviously they're going to do Hamlet every once in a while. It's, it is. It's so famous. Right. But I think if you're going to try to do a summertime play and you're going to keep people moving. Um, it's way easier to do other plays to take on Hamlet is, is a challenge. I think you have to cut it. And what I read again, when I was reading the article was that they cut not a little bit, they cut a lot. 
Like there was tons of stuff. And that what the director then did was allowed the actors to argue back some of the some of the play. So the actors were then invited to basically be like, no, 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 you have to keep this line and here's why. And ultimately it was the director's decision, but the director at least was willing to sort of like hear out the actors and be like, okay, you know, like you're reading the part, like you're going to play, you're going to play Ophelia, you're going to play Hamlet, you're going to play Polonius. Like, why is this so essential to your character? So they did sort of hear that out. Um, But I also think that that, I mean, I, I didn't see it. I haven't, I didn't go to the production of Hamlet that you went to, so you know. But I mean, I think one of the criticisms that was then levied at it was that it was that it was unfocused. And so I think if you if you're a director and you're telling the your actors they can argue back lines, then do you real like what's your real objective there? So I don't know. It can it can get argued back and forth. But I think I I mean my my preference is seeing Shakespeare with the dialogue that was meant to be there there. You know, and 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 then I think it's how you interpret that. You know, I think it's then set design and direction is so much of it. Like I saw um God, what was it? I saw Midsummer Night's Dream in the park like a few years back when they had, I don't even know how, you know, it's probably eight, 10 years ago now, something like that, maybe. Um, but I saw Midsummer Night's Dream and like that was such a great production and that's not that long of a play. So it's easy to leave it all in and do the whole thing. But like, I found that interpretation, that particular director and their vision of that really gave me, I think a much better clearer understanding of the humor of the play um than anything that i'd ever seen and i think that it was people could critique it and say it was a very in some ways it was a very traditional telling but i think there were some things that were done that were untraditional so i don't know i mean i'm a person that like you know i if i if i have to say that there's if i lean towards any camp it's like shakespeare put this stuff in for a reason it should be there if you want to do if you want to if you want to cut a third of the play then you're going to get a watered down hamlet you know yeah and you can't reduce it to the memes like that's not shakespeare i mean i i lean that way too because well Obviously, I like Hamlet, but I mean, I also I met people who have read every single play and have loved Shakespeare forever and people who haven't read one play. They don't really know anything. They're just going for fun. So I guess this was an attempt to appeal to both audiences because two hours and 45 minutes, it's still relatively long. Yeah, but I mean, I think when you try to make everybody happy, then you wind up pissing everybody off. So I don't know. That's just, but I didn't see the play, so um, or I haven't seen that particular production of Hamlet. So you know, I mean, it's 
Hamlet's hard, man. I mean, I don't know. I feel like if you try to do a populist Hamlet, which is essentially what we're talking about here, like that's a that's a needle to thread, man. I don't know, but God bless him for trying. Yeah, I mean, for for a Midsummer Night's Dream, at the very least, we're talking about a shorter play that takes place in the summer. So for them to, yeah, I, yeah, I think we have to give them some credit for trying to do this. Yeah, let's see him try to do a Winter's Tale in July. <laughs> Come on now. All right, we got a we got a whole scene. We got don't we have a long scene? We got to move. We got to move briskly. We have a very gonna, long. See scene. this is what we're talking about. We're gonna lose. We're gonna lose this whole audience of <laughs> podcast. At what do you call people to listen to podcasts? Just listeners. That seems so. like giving them the short shrift. I don't know. <laughs> okay, Pod we don't we don't want to lose focus. Podites, pod people. Hello, pod people. All right, let's go. Focus. Okay. I feel like I feel like I'm giving a monologue with this overview, but okay. So Claudius and Gertrude ask Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are Hamlet's good friends, to find out what is wrong with Hamlet. Claudius uh, brings in ambassadors who explain that the king of Norway thought that his nephew Fortinbras was planning on invading Poland, not Denmark. So Fortinbras essentially lied to the king of Norway. Uh, furthermore, the king has arrested Fortinbras and he is now invade. He has now vowed not to invade Denmark, but does ask for permission to pass through Denmark in order to invade Poland. Next, Polonius explains in a very drawn out way that Hamlet is crazy because of Ophelia's rejection and suggests that Polonius will tell uh, Ophelia to see Hamlet and Claudius and Ophelia can spy on them to see if Hamlet's in love with her. So this is just more spying being done on Hamlet, basically. Uh, Polonius and Hamlet have... Uh, kind of silly conversation seemingly intentional by hamlet to further convince polonius that uh, hamlet is mad but noting of course that there is a method to his madness um as we discussed before that's where the expression comes from and then rosencrantz and guildenstern see hamlet and while they say they're just there to visit him hamlet knows that they're lying they tell hamlet that a bunch of actors are on their way to denmark and hamlet greets the actors and has one perform a little bit Hamlet has Polonius make sure that the actors are well taken care of and tells the actors to perform the murder of Gonzago, though Hamlet will make a few modifications. Finally, we get another Hamlet soliloquy, and he expresses despair and a plan to determine the guilt of his uncle. Whew. Okay, so it's first thing, this is a funny one. So when when Claudius and Gertrude ask Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are again Hamlet's friends, uh, to figure out what's going on with Hamlet, uh, Rosencrantz notes that they don't even really have a choice because it's more of an order than a question. Um, he's probably right about this, but it's still a funny moment. Is this discussion um, between them just to be a funny moment or... As Shakespeare was living in a time of monarchy, did it also serve to make clear that the monarchy still has the final say? Because this is a play that kind of defies the current royalty. Is this just making it clear, you know, they still have the final say? Or again, is it just funny? Well, I mean, both. I mean, both, right? So it's, you know, this is also why 
people say that Shakespeare was Elizabeth's fool, her jester, right? Because like he could go to these places where other people would wind up in the dungeon, right? So he could make these jokes where it's kind of like, well, you know, sounded like a request, but it was in order since it was coming from, you know, coming from the monarch. Like, and everybody would have gotten that. I think everybody in that Elizabethan audience and nobody more than than the nobles, right? Um, would have gotten that joke. Um, but the fact that Shakespeare could even make the joke was something that set him apart from a lot of other people. Um, you know, because there were definitely other people that if they would have put that on the stage, um, it would have either been a very short-lived production or, or they would have found themselves in, in a very precarious uh, position. So, you know, I, I do think that, that yes, it's a joke. Yes, it's, but I, I mean, I don't think it's so much about that anybody needed Shakespeare to, to solidify the understanding that the monarchy was the last word in, in you know, in the Middle Ages. Um, I think it was more that like, you know, Shakespeare got to sit there and be like, huh, huh? Okay, Elizabeth, that's pretty funny, huh? And like, she'd be like, ha, 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 right? Because Shakespeare could do that. So I think we do see, the, we see so many of these moments um, throughout Shakespeare where he makes little jokes about royalty and he makes jokes about the monarch. And we know who he's joking about. Like everybody knows. And he always maintains a little bit of, you know, plausible deniability and sometimes very thinly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it wasn't so much about reinforcing authority as it was just about like, you know, going to a taboo place and getting away with it. No, that, that makes sense. I think you're right that there would have been no question who was in charge. Um, you know, despite this play. Um, okay. So another funny thing is that at line 33, Claudia says, thanks, Rosencrantz and gentle Guildenstern. And then Gertrude says, thanks, Guildenstern and gentle Rosencrantz. So when I went to see Hamlet during Shakespeare in the Park, they had this scene as Claudius confusing Hamlet's friend, friends and Gertrude correcting him. There are no like special stage directions or anything like in, in the play. So I didn't even realize that that was happening. Do you think that this is what Shakespeare meant or is that just something they saw and decided to add it? I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of, of screenplays and plays, right? Of scripts, right? Which is like, there's a million ways to play it. So I think that it's just about what do you see? And this goes back to the whole idea of like art being a mirror, you know, Picasso, saying art is a lie that helps us see the truth about ourselves it just reflects back what we want to see so i think in a scene like that is that an entirely plausible interpretation yeah absolutely 100 um could you leave it out and do no harm absolutely you know but like and and it's also just a little bit of just being silly and actually nobody picks up on that the silliness around Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are comic relief in the least funny of probably <laughs> Shakespeare's plays. So, like, that's a that's a that's a tough crowd. Um, 
but it was it um who was it i want to say tom stoppard i'd have to look it up but there's a play called rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead that was a you know it was written in like the 60s or something like that it was like a very counterculture kind of uh late 20 mid to late 20th century uh piece of writing um but it's it's very uh it's very funny um and it's very absurdist and it sort of really really takes the the idea that that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are ridiculous they're ridiculous characters they're they're fops they're just like they're fools um and they're and they're bumbling and they're 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 naive and they just sort of showed up in the wrong place at the wrong time and got in the middle of stuff that they had no no clue and they just sort of bumble their way through it um and and i think that if you ever want to read uh, you know something that came out of hamlet uh, rosencrantz and gilster or i'm sure there's like some good film versions and things like that and you'll see a theatrical pr- production every once in a while um and it's just a really great it's a great uh sort of take on those characters and picking up on what you're talking about which is there's so much weird little leeway that you can take with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So they're, they're interesting. They're interesting characters. Yeah. And, and then also when I was at the play, um, it seemed like, I don't know if I should say Shakespeare or the actors were like kind of guiding us back on the right track um, about, about Hamlet. So involving kind of us in the play it seemed like Shakespeare was almost deceiving us and kind of making us forget who Claudius is like he is portrayed as really caring about Hamlet like he wants to see what the root of his you know craziness is that might have ulterior motives but and he might actually care about Hamlet which is back to the multi-dimensionality of these characters but then when I saw the play, it just kind of snapped me back. Like he is a multi multi-dimensional character and we think that he cares about Hamlet. And then, and then at least for me, I was like, Oh, well, he's at least partially ingenuine, just this small detail. Like when I was actually at the play that just brought me back, like right back to that. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think you're picking up on one of the really important things about, about these characters, which is, it can be both because they're human, right? They can be like, like a horrible, deceptive person. And at the same time, there can be a part of them that cares. And it depends at any given moment, like where their thoughts are directed or what pressures are being put upon them as to how they act and, and from which part of themselves are they acting. So, yeah. And I think that was that was something new in, in Shakespeare's writing. And, you know, it was like, wait a minute, is this, is this a, is this a a evil, terrible, horrible character? Are they just, you know, what, what are they supposed to be? Which, which of the Greek masks are they? Because they need to be one and it can't be more. And, And then Shakespeare was like, well, you know, they're in the middle. They wear different masks at different times. And there was a complexity to that. So, yeah. 
All right. And then when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are talking to Hamlet, at first Hamlet, you know, doesn't really know what they're up to yet, that they're trying to spy on him. And Rosencrantz says that the world has grown honest. And Hamlet responds that doomsday is near, which is basically saying, you know, if people are truthful, the world must be ending. Um, Hamlet is probably referencing the fact that his mom and his uncle were dishonest to him. But I think that in some ways, this is dramatic irony because Hamlet doesn't know, one, that Ophelia will soon visit him so that Claudius and Polonius can spy on them. And two, the friends who he is saying this to are just there to spy on him. Yeah. And I mean, this is, you know, I mean, it's like, again, I am always leaning on, on quotes, but it's, you know, the old adage, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. So it it fits Hamlet so perfectly. He's so emo though. Like he's so cynical. Like he was, he's so young and he just became cynical. So, so, so quickly he just got, it was just like, I, can you imagine Hamlet before his father died? He was probably some happy-go-lucky teenager. And he was like, oh, Philia, I love you. You're so pretty. And then like all, and now he's like, I hate everything. And the world sucks. So life, life can do that. Life can do that to you. But, but it's sad. Ha- Hamlet is a casualty uh, of that. And yeah, everybody is, in, everybody is untrustworthy. But I mean, isn't that what he learned out of this experience, if nothing else? If he can't trust his mother, you know, then at that point, it's like, dude, <laughs> like if he can't trust that his mother didn't murder his father, like that's heavy. So, yeah, I mean, we can, it's, it's kind of hard. Like, you know, we, we talk about this. It's hard to read this play. But in another way that it's difficult is that we, being the audience, can say whatever we want about Hamlet, but we're not in his shoes. So in this case, I'm like, Hamlet, why are you so cynical, except that you think that your mom killed your dad? And then another example is that I was talking to someone at... um you know, when I was at Shakespeare at the park again, and he was saying that, you know, Hamlet is so indecisive. That's what a lot of people know the play for. Um, but then oh. what? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, Continue. okay. Yeah. So then we got into this discussion, but it's like, can you blame him? Like the decision that he has to make potentially is killing his uncle. Like, we can say, why are you so indecisive? But like, if we were in that situation, like we might probably would do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, and the problem is, is that Hamlet also has no support. Right. I mean, that's the other thing too, is like part of the, what it, what's going on with Hamlet is very much like, it's like, he's standing on a cliff. And one second he's standing on the cliff and he's looking out over the ocean. And isn't that nice? I'm looking down on the ocean. And then the next moment, there's that sort of like vertigo of like, oh my God, I'm standing on a cliff and I'm really close to the edge and I'm standing here looking over the ocean. 
And then Hamlet's situation is, and the entire cliff is crumbling. And I turn around to run and there's nowhere to run to because every single inch of ground around me is, is, is crumbling and turning to sand beneath my feet. And there's nowhere to go, but down into the abyss. Right. And so like, I think for Hamlet, there is no footing. It just doesn't exist. And I think that's part of the problem is that he needs somebody. And we see this in so many other plays, you know, whether it's, you know, Romeo, um, you know, he has, he has Benvolio, he has Mercutio, you know, he, he doesn't do it alone. You know, we see in so many other plays, like, you know, we mentioned Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, Robin Goodfellow, um, is, is, is there for, uh, you know, is there for his king, his very king. So, um, you know, Oberon doesn't do everything alone. So everybody's got somebody. So I think part of the problem, and, and this is part of the meditation of Hamlet, is when there is nobody that you can turn to, nobody that you trust, when you feel completely isolated and completely alone, and that that is both a very true and very real situation, but it's also a direct pathway to madness. Because there's nothing, there's nothing. What, is, what does Hamlet have that he can hold on to? What does Hamlet have for support? Nothing. I and mean, if he yeah. had Ophelia, he blew it. Right. And I was thinking he might have Horatio, but even if Horatio was completely loyal to him, he can't trust him because he can't trust anyone. Right. Exactly. Because everything that he ever knew about trust has been destroyed in one blow. Right. And so, right. it's and then just, it just keeps, yeah, just keeps going. Right. And, 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 it, and there is no light at the end of the tunnel. That's the, that's the bleakest part about Hamlet is that um, if there was some, any shred of hope, but like Shakespeare so effectively at any moment when there may be anything that appears to resemble hope, Shakespeare incredibly effectively just stomps it out. It's such a bleak play. So again, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's a hard one to do in the park on a summer night. Like the, just the fact that, it, that they did it and the fact that they got so many people to go along for the ride, however they did it and whatever they cut. I mean, I got to give credit to that. Like that's a, you know, to, to take people on that ride um, is it's gutsy. That was our first discussion centered around Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions or feedback, please let us know at theshakespeareanspodcast at gmail.com. Next time, we'll finish discussing the exciting Act 2, Scene 2. I hope to see you there.